Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg. And I'm Eve Yohalem. In each episode of this podcast, we use books as a way to explore questions that fascinate us. And in this episode, we consider ways to bring the truth to light. Our guest today, Erica Krauss, became a master at eliciting the truth from reluctant sources when she became a private investigator for a lawyer, helping him establish that the football program at a university had an ingrained culture of sexual assault and harassment, and that the university had therefore violated Title IX. I was a little hesitant to suggest to you, Eve, that we interview Erica, because we interviewed another private investigator in episode 106. I know that we both love that episode. Our guest then, Ellen McGarrahan, is just phenomenal. And we like to have a lot of variety in our podcast content. But I kept seeing such glowing reviews for Erica Krause's memoir, Tell Me Everything, the story of a private investigation. The New York Times called it literary nonfiction at a high level, beautifully written, disturbing, and affecting. And according to Publishers Weekly, it's a stunning story of redemption and hope. So I pitched it to you. Yes, and it took me roughly one second to say, absolutely, let's do it. Because the stories that Ellen and Erica tell are very different, and each is important in its own way. While working on the Title IX case, Erica developed an expertise in drawing out the truth that's grounded in her own painful family experience. She weaves these two threads, the case and relevant moments from her life through the book, and she discussed both with us in a conversation we're very eager to share with you. But first, a little bit more about Erica. Her short story collection, Come Up and See Me Sometime, won the Patterson Fiction Award, was the New York Times Notable Book of the Year, and is translated into six languages. Her short fiction has been published in The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and many other publications. Her stories have been shortlisted for Best American Short Stories, Best American Non-Required Reading, and the Pushcart Prize. She's also the author of the novel Contenders. Tell Me Everything is her first nonfiction book. It was a Book of the Month Club pick, a New York Times Editor's Choice pick, and a People Magazine People pick. We started by asking Erica how she became a private investigator, where she was in her career path at the time, and what led to her being offered the job. Here's what she said. So um, I had no career at the time. (laughs) (laughs) I was floating from temp job to temp job and just trying to make my rent. I did have a book out, but it was just a book of short stories, and it didn't really lead anywhere uh, professionally for me. So... From there, I, I was just sort of scrounging at work. And at that time, I went to a bookstore and I ran into a lawyer and he did what people tend to do with me, which is he just told me a whole bunch of stuff about his life <laughs> that I had no business knowing. And then he was very shocked. He was kind of surprised that he had disclosed all this private information to me. And I said, it's okay. I, that happens all the time with me. It's just what happens with me. Mm-hmm. And he sensed an opportunity there and he said, come work for me. Uh, and I said, doing what? And I was really afraid he was going to say something nasty. But instead, he offered me this job as a private investigator for his lawsuits. And I, I jumped on it, uh, partly because he was offering a lot more money than I was making as a temp. And partly because it was kind of a, like a secret bucket list item for me, like be a private eye. 
One of your first cases as a private investigator was the first Title IX sexual assault case in the country. Right. Before we get into it more deeply, let's just start with some basic facts. What mm-hmm. happened to the lawyer's client, Simone? What pattern of behavior at the university did that incident fall within? And what role were you asked to play? So there was a female college student named Simone in my book who was sexually assaulted by a group of college football players at a party at her house and recruits as well. And so what ended up happening was the district attorney would not prosecute. And instead it became a civil matter because if the criminal courts won't prosecute, then the civil courts are an option. And instead of just going after the football players, you can't really do that in a civil case, there's not as much point to it. Civil cases are more for bigger systemic problems. Uh, Mm -hmm. The attorney I worked for said, I think maybe we can make an argument for Title IX here because this student didn't have the same opportunities as the male students because she's being harassed and discriminated against you know, because of what happened to her. So she doesn't have the same equal right to education. So that was a new idea. It was a really new concept at that time. Of course, now, whenever you see Title IX in the news, it's usually paired with sexual assault, but that had not happened when we began this case. And what I was tasked with was finding a football culture that predisposed players to think that sexual assault was an option for them if they wanted to. And um, I want to stress that not not every football player wants to do that, right? But, um, you know, for those who could, we, we were showing that there was no accountability for such actions and that the culture actually sort of pushed them in that direction in general, which again, points to Title IX, the fact that, you know, if you're a woman, you're not safe going to school in the same way that a man is then you don't have equal rights. The book is in part about how difficult it can be to bring the truth to light, even when there are multiple witnesses to horrifying events. And it was your job to get people to talk about what they knew, and they were often deeply reluctant to do so for Mm -hmm. various reasons. Right. Could you give us an example or two of a woman that you spoke with who ended up sharing with you more than she initially intended to? maybe Calliope, for instance? Yeah, for very, very good reasons. Calliope did not want to talk to me very much about what had happened to her. In fact, I didn't know what had happened to her when we entered the conversation. Uh, We were just talking about what had happened to the person um, I called Simone because Calliope had been at that party. But then it became very evident. Um, I think people do have reluctance to share personal details but they also crave it. I think there's this sort of need for us to be seen and for us to be known, not just for what we present to the world, but also, you know, our, our secret selves. I think that's why we do a lot of our behaviors, honestly. And so when I was talking with her, I just could tell, I could tell something was up and not just because of her behavior, also because I myself am a survivor of sexual assault. So I just saw these markers I could see her hiding because I, I hide <laughs> too in my, my interactions with people. So it's sort of like it takes one to know one, right? Mm-hmm. There are, of course, PI techniques you can use, but I didn't know any of those at mm-hmm. the time. At the time, I was just a rookie feeling my way through really the most exciting job I had ever had. So I really just asked the direct questions. And 
I learned through the experience of, of PI work that that's really most of what you need to do is just ask the question that everyone's usually too polite to ask. But if you let go of the social conventions and let go of propriety and maybe take a risk that someone's going to get angry at you for asking the question, most of the time they won't get angry at you. Most of the time they'll actually be relieved and they'll say the thing that they've just been dying to say, really. Yeah. There are nonverbal strategies too, right? When you're listening that you use, whether I guess at the time it must have just been purely instinctively. Can you talk some of, about some of those? I think I learned a lot of these nonverbal strategies because growing up in a difficult situation, I was very desperate always to get out of my house. So I would do anything to make people want me around. I would do anything. I think from a young age, I was subconsciously studying people's behavior, really. And I was trying to sort of uh, see what made people want you around. Mm -hmm. Um, And I picked up a lot of these things along the way. Um, But as I became more enmeshed in the job of private investigation, I started using these strategies more deliberately. And they can be anything from, you know, which way you lean in a conversation. Are you leaning forward? Are you leaning back? Forward isn't always good, right? Back Mm -hmm. isn't always good. It Mm -hmm. depends on what's happening in the conversation. Open gestures. Respecting the other person's rhythm of eye contact is incredibly important because not everybody wants you boring your eyes into them. You know, if they're looking away a lot, you look away a lot. So there's a lot of mirroring that happens. That mirroring will let the person know that you will respect their boundaries, Mm -hmm. especially when you're dealing with people who have experienced sexual violence. They really, you know, I'll, I'll say we really need that. We really need someone to respect our boundaries. So there's not really the same kind of boundary crashing behavior that you'll see in a PI book, you know, like some kind of a novel, right? Where they're just like crashing through and they've got their personality is the most important thing. Mm -hmm. You know, that doesn't really happen. You're really trying to let someone know that they can trust you in the conversation and that they have agency, they have control, they get to determine what happens in that conversation. It must have been physically intimidating to meet with football players you know, for all sorts of reasons, and particularly since they had been told, in essence, that you were the enemy. Can you share with us an example or two of what it was like to talk to them? Maybe, mm-hmm. for instance, what it was like to meet the guy that you call huge. Uh, he's <laughs> huge, huge. <laughs> I really liked huge, actually. I mean, he was actually, he was a really good person. You know, he was a good guy. He was just in that culture, right? But he, he wasn't an abuser. He had no inclinations to do some of the things that were happening on the team. That said, with a good guy who I knew was a good guy, who was very upstanding and, um, you know, everyone called him a goody two shoes. He never got in trouble, that kind of thing. But he was enormous. He was Mm -hmm. so big that even just meeting him in a coffee shop, it it was a statement. He dominated the room. Mm -hmm. And I realized very quickly that physical size creates a whole series of rules around it, right? Like, I don't know how I would have felt having to say, I, did, I didn't have to say no to Huge, but like, how would I have felt having to say no to Huge if he were, were aggressively going after 
anything, but, you know, particularly your body, right? Like, mm-hmm. how would that be? Um, and there are all these other aspects to it. You know, he has the power of the team behind him. He has the power of celebrity, even just sitting there and talking to him, everybody's staring at him and, you know, pointing and, you know, cause he's a starter, he's a star. So there was that sort of aura around him. And I thought, well, this is my best case scenario here, right? right? What's it like when you're with someone who does mean you harm, who does want to hurt you? Yeah. And then I did talk to some people who did scare me, you know, where I was like, oh my God, I'm going to lock my doors. Erica spoke with so many different kinds of people for this case, and we could have talked with her endlessly about the different strategies she deployed to get folks to talk, depending on the circumstances. She picked up one catchphrase from Huge. He would say, we're just talking here, before he revealed something. So she started saying to other football players, we're just talking here. And it often worked like a charm to lower the tension and help people open up. What she said about the attitude she put on when speaking with a lot of the football players was also fascinating to me. She said they were so used to getting attention and adoration from the media and fans, she really played up that she didn't care at all about football and was totally unimpressed by them, which in turn made them want to disclose more just to gain her attention. Yeah. I mean, her book is a masterclass, really, in how to get people to talk to you even when the subject matter is difficult and there are all sorts of reasons for them not to say a word. Erica is well aware that these strategies are fundamentally manipulative and she has some qualms about using them. We asked her about that next. In an interview with Bomb Magazine, you said, I always thought the subtitle of this book should be How I Became an Asshole. (laughs) It's hard enough to think of yourself as a likable character under normal circumstances. And I'm quoting you here. And I did some questionable to bad things while investigating my first big case. There were straight up heroes and villains, but my territory was the morally bewildering middle. Can you tell us about some of the questionable to bad things you did while investigating the case and how you feel about having done them? Yeah, well, I feel terrible about having (laughs) just put that out there. And there were things that I couldn't put in the book. So we had this legal review and the lawyer would say, are you sure you want that in there? And he'd say, you know, because you can get in trouble. And I'd say, "Okay, let's take it out. So there's a lot of stuff I left out. Mm -hmm. But some of the things that I, I feel particularly bad about are the situations where I did sort of veer into that bully territory. There was one person in particular I'm thinking of who it was dangerous for her to be involved with the case. And I feel like I manipulated her to stay involved by telling her, you know, well, we'll just subpoena you anyway, which I actually don't think would have happened. I feel really bad about that because I feel like whether or not that person um, decided to stay in the case is 100 percent her. You know, it's her right. Mm -hmm. Here I was sort of skewing the picture because without her, we could have easily lost. And there's this idea of like means to an end, right? Like I was like, oh, cool. Well, this is like a, this is a rape case. It's going to make women safer. It's going to save thousands of, you know, women, right? More maybe, who knows, right? Who knows what's going to happen with this case? So I thought, you know, I was doing this thing for the good, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I do know that I was directly manipulating individuals for that and individuals who are like me, right? right? So mm-hmm. I, I've never been able to reconcile those things with myself. And that is part of the reason why I, I did end up abandoning PI work. Not to say that I wouldn't ever go back. I mean, I probably could be lured back with the right case if I had 
therapy and a lot of, you know, good boundaries in place. But at that time, I really didn't. And especially compromised by the fact that this was such a personal case for me. You know, for me, it was like, if we could win this case, then, you know, everything that had happened to me would have been somehow um, redeemed. And that's, you know, that's not true. It turns out that most of the perpetrators of sexual assault in your case play defense on the football team, not offense. What did you learn about why that likely was? Yeah, my understanding, the way I had it explained to me is that with defense, the whole idea is hurting people, putting them on the ground and making sure they don't get up again. Mm -hmm. Defense is meant to hurt, you're meant to hurt people. If your whole life is football and your job is to hurt people, how are you going to get enough of something that's going to counterbalance that in your regular life so that you're not hurting people all the time. And I'm not making excuses for what those people did because there are a lot of defensive players who who never hurt anyone off the field and they didn't make those choices. But if you compound that with, you know, the fact that a lot of, a lot of the players were marginalized, racially marginalized in the community and isolated. And also the fact that there's this huge economic divide with um, many of them who came from way more economically disadvantaged homes and then coming into this community that's pretty rich. Um, The fact that they are separate from other students because many of them have brain damage and actually can't do the schoolwork. So there's Mm -hmm. schoolwork's being done for them. So there's a, a lot of factors going on there that, again, create a culture and then the coaching, right? Then top down yeah. sort of encouragement for misogyny, um, calling women, calling men by women's slurs when they don't play well. You know, mm-hmm. there's just a lot of that on the field. Yeah. And they're 20 years old. Yeah. They haven't formed the judgment part of their brain yet. Exactly. <laughs> Fully. Yeah. When you first started working on this case, you thought you shouldn't do it because of certain circumstances involving your childhood and family. Mm-hmm. Would you mind if I read what you wrote about those circumstances? I imagine it's extraordinarily difficult to talk about. Oh, please, please go ahead. I'm a rhinoceros. <laughs> <laughs> um, you wrote, my own sexual assaults had been different from Simone's. I had been a small child, not a college student. I was abused not by multiple peers, but by one adult I now call X. The attacks continued from when I was four until I was about seven, not just one brutal time. You also write about how your mother didn't believe you and didn't protect you from X, who played a parental role in the family. She eventually disowned you. Mm -hmm. Let me just say, I mean, I'm... I know this is small consolation, but I'm so sorry for all that you've gone through. Thank you. That's so kind. Thank you. Um, You manage in the book to describe what one reviewer has called, quote unquote, poisoned gifts that developed as a result of these circumstances, including a facility for reading people and getting them to open up to you. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little about the connection between the trauma that you've experienced and this facility? Sure. You know, your brain develops a little differently when you've experienced trauma at a young age. You know, even if you experience it when you're 60, it still changes your neurology mm-hmm. a lot. You just sort of have a different way of relating to things. And you also grow up so much with that fight or flight, uh, fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. <laughs> say that 10 times best. Um, that area is so is on all the time. You're always sort of scanning 
mm-hmm. to find to find out what the real story is. And what the real story is might be that things are going to blow up in five seconds, right? Or yeah. you're going to be in trouble in five minutes or five days or whatever. It's almost like always testing the weather. And I think that what that did for me is it ended up being a perfect match for the PI job <laughs> because you're trying to always pick up on what's really happening, right? Mm-hmm. Someone says, I'm fine. You know, you can hear that, right? I'm fine. That kind of tambourine in the voice, you say, oh, they're not fine, right? right? Mm-hmm. You know that because you're, you're always looking for for beyond the surface, for what might be dangerous, what might be troubling, what might be a conflict. Mm-hmm. You're always on edge, always looking for the problem. But again, that's perfect for PI work. There's a story that you tell in the book about a later terrifying experience in a restaurant when you were working the night shift that made you feel like you couldn't possibly work on this football sexual assault case because, I'm quoting you, I didn't protect women or make justice happen. I was dead. I was nobody. Do you mind telling us about that night? And also, how does it feel now knowing that, in fact, you have been instrumental in protecting women and making justice happen? Right. Oh, well, thank you for that. Um, so that night was really weird. I, I was waitressing the night shift and because um, the person who usually did it wanted to uh, go have sex. So, <laughs> so, so I took over her shift. I was doing a double and I was really tired. And then this boy, really, man, he's about my age. He was about 18. He came in and he was obviously having some psychological issues. And he told me that he had murdered his girlfriend. And he started thinking I was his girlfriend. He started calling me by her name, Sharon. And he asked if he could sleep in the booth. He asked me for um, a cheeseburger, I think, or a hamburger or something. And um, I was alone. The cook was sleeping. Uh, <laughs> so, um, And also, you know, he, he probably wouldn't have helped me either. He was in the country illegally. So I knew that I was kind of alone. This is a highway diner. Mm-hmm. It would have taken a while for someone to get to me if I called the police, but I didn't even think of it. That's the weird thing is I never even thought of calling the police and reporting this person who said he murdered someone who he now thought I was. So that, that to me was the most troubling part is that, again, I didn't have the, the neurology to think of getting help or helping people in that way or making justice happen. I, I never told the police. I never told them that I had this murderer, um, <laughs> you know, confessing murder in the diner that I was working in. And so it didn't seem like my place in justice was a, a legitimate place. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And do you connect that sort of failure, I guess, on your part to call the police? Do you connect that to your um, childhood experience? Yeah, I, you know, I never, no one helped me. So it still doesn't occur to me that I can ask for help. It takes me way longer than other people. Mm -hmm. But, you know, to answer your other question, you know, how do I feel now? I do feel different. I I didn't win this case. That was the plaintiffs and the lawyers, but I I did help. Mm -hmm. Having been involved in something important, having done something substantial to help others win this case, uh, help others find justice it does make me think a little differently about it now. I still have that problem, you know, mm-hmm. thinking of, of asking other people for help, but I, I, do, um, I do have a clearer head about it, for sure. You write in the book, I hadn't been trying to prove a rape case to a bunch of white men in black robes who didn't matter to me. I had been trying to prove it to my mother. Yeah. If we could win, if some judge would smash a gavel and say, this happened and it was wrong, 
then my mother would have to admit the same thing. You did win the case, but your mother never admitted the truth about X. Mm -hmm. It makes me think, you know, if a panel of judges were to adjudicate the story of our own childhoods and smash gavels and say, the child is right, this happened, it was wrong, the mother is mistaken, you know, even then we would still want our mothers to acknowledge that truth, right? which is just a tremendous amount of power that our hearts yield to one person. Do you have anything you'd like to say about what it's like to try to take that power back? Yeah, it involves a lot of self-parenting, right? Mm -hmm. We have a value in our society, I think, of that centers around forgiveness, you know, forgive those who have harmed you. What it does assume is that those people want forgiveness, that they want to be, you know, they want that, that from you. But what happens when they don't? What happens when they're like, you're on your own, you know? Yeah. <laughs> what what yeah. happens when you forgiving them is just sort of craving a relationship that they don't want in return? Mm -hmm. That's the most difficult thing. It really does involve giving up hope in someone that is very important to you. And your parents are the people that it's hardest to give up hope for, right? They were your primary relationship. So a lot of my book actually t focuses on that, like how to give up hope. How do you give up hope in that, you know, that relationship so you can have hope in yourself. Mm -hmm. And it really, again, it involves accepting that if anyone's going to parent you, it has to be you. Not only does it have to be you, but you have to learn how to do that because you never really had that kind of parenting that you crave. So it's a lot of work yeah. <laughs> and it's work you don't want to do, you know, because you see other people and they just sort of have that, you know, they have, you know, parents who love them or, you know, that kind of relationship that you've always wanted where you feel supported or protected or whatever, and you're not going to have it. And um, the hardest thing to hear is that you're never going to have it. Mm -hmm. Right. But it's the truest truest thing. That hits me so hard. How do you give up hope in your relationship with your parents so that you can have hope in yourself? God. Yeah. And, you know, by writing this book and telling the truth about what happened to her as a child, Erica, in her words, hammered the nail further into the coffin of her family relationships. Her mom ended up disowning her. Yet she chose to tell that story. I know. She includes at the beginning of the book an incredible quote about the decision to write it. It's from Margaret Atwood, and I'll just read it here. I wonder which is preferable, to walk around all your life swollen up with your own secrets until you burst from the pressure of them, or to have them sucked out of you every paragraph, every sentence, every word of them, so at the end you're depleted of all that was once as precious to you as hoarded gold, everything that was of the deepest importance to you, everything that made you cringe and wish to conceal, everything that belonged to you alone and must spend the rest of your days like an empty sack flapping in the wind, an empty sack branded with a bright fluorescent label so that everyone will know what sort of secrets used to be inside you. Mm. I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. Yes, and thinking about the fact that there are writers in the world who are able to put thoughts like that into words. Those yeah, words, that, wow. That too, yeah. 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 And with that, I'm going to say that is it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.
As always, you can reach us at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram. You can find Erica at ericacrauswriter.com. Many thanks to our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eviohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.